I'm Erica. I'm Corey. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I am Erica. I'm an academic ecologist. I would like to plug letting go of concepts of yourself that you believe. Just any concept. Do you have a concept that you hold uh, as part of your identity that you would let go? Uh, I'm thinking of myself as a person. With attributes or no attributes? Oh, I certainly have attributes, but that was just an example of a thing I could let go of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what you would replace that with. Oh, no, then I would just lose the conception of myself and just be like a free floating thoughts. That would be interesting. I think there are some forms of religion that have you do that. Seems healthier. Do you have like a concept of yourself that you would let go of? I mean, this might be kind of a more surface level um, interpretation of what you're talking about, but I think a lot about how people are, are, are kind of defined by like their profession Mm-hmm. Like first and foremost, like, I don't know if you see a news story, it's like, you know, 47 year old, you know, whatever is involved house in X, Y, or Z. Yeah. 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 House paint. Yeah. So I, I don't know. And it, it kind of feeds back on itself and makes you, you know, further define yourself in a certain kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, genre or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm, I'm going to teach Winston, when people ask him, like, what do you want to grow up to be? He wants, I want to be a healthy, mentally stable human being. Right. A pluripotent human being, you know, like we, we don't lose that as we age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Segwaying from that. Um, I'll introduce myself as Corey and say, uh, I'm an amateur game designer as of recently. And that's, that's how I'll choose to define myself <laughs> right now. And, uh, yeah. So I guess from that, I'd say, uh, I plug my, my sparse for right now, itch page. It's uh, kbones, uh, dot itch dot io. Um, I'd also like to plug finding cool and positive internet spaces to hang out in, maybe not social media, like the Topic Lords Discord, for example. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I'll throw in the Video Game History Foundation. I do some uh, volunteer work for them and maybe check them out, maybe donate some money, help them uh, excavate uh, old Bubsy memorabilia or whatever they do. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's <yeah>. cool. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> They just bought a new excavator specifically for that. Just, just to, I heard there's like 600 Bubsy dolls just buried in the desert somewhere. So. <laughs> They're just going to start digging up random hills and say, maybe there's, maybe there's Bubsy in there. <laughs> You've got three games on your itch page, which is three games more than most people. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. I mean, two of them are essentially the same game. That's but, well, I that's mean, that, true. <laughs> that hasn't stopped too many people. Um, I wanted to I wanted to say, though, um, the concept of myself that I was uh, forced to let go recently that led me to plugging this topic. I recently um, told somebody that I was going to check the maps on my telephone. And then I was in the supermarket. Uh, there was like somebody cutting up cantaloupe and serving it as samples during like the cantaloupe uh, salmonella scare. Uh, which I I said no to, but then somebody had something like savory, like cheese or something at the next station. I said to him, now that's what I'm talking about. And I realized that not only was this the, like the most uncool thing I've ever said in my entire life, but it's like the most uncool thing anybody could say in, in anybody's entire life. About, About cheese? 
Just like the, yeah, now that's what I'm talking about to a stranger. Counterpoint, counterpoint. Uh, we were unpacking groceries <laughs> and I was putting away a jar of jam and I told my wife, that's my jam. No, that's good. That's good. See, that's a joke. That's pretty on brand for you. Also, you know her. I said this to a complete stranger. Oh, you're right. That does that does make a difference. The, the feeling of like being a cool person just evaporated at that moment. Uh, like I, I'm never going back. That, that sounds so freeing. I, yes. I mean, well, that's why I'm plugging this. See, I mean, it's that like... that story didn't go exactly where I thought it was going to go. I thought you were going to say I define myself as someone who doesn't take samples of cheese. You know, maybe you only enjoy sweet samples, and and you decided to just throw caution yeah. to the wind and and grab that cheese. No, I'm I'm done. I'm done being a cool person. My time on this on this planet as a cool person. Is over. Eric, you're you're bursting my bubble right now. <laughs> the other way to approach that though is you can you can embrace the cringe and you can accept yourself as a cringy person. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's it's basically the same thing. But you can't you can't do that. You can't be honest with yourself until you're actually let go of like that previous notion that you had in its place. But you can't be cool and cringe at the same time. Is that what you're arguing? Uh, yes, I think those are diametrically opposed. I mean, maybe there's some sort of synthesis to be had of this, but I'm I'm certainly yeah. No, we like this is scientists are researching it right now. How do you be <laughs> how how to be cool and cringe at the same time? <laughs> This is at 11. <laughs> Did I ask? No, Cora, you volunteered a plug. Yes. So, Jim, do you want to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Or do you have any self-conceived notions you want to assume? No, I don't, I don't want people to know. I don't want people to know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to be a weird podcast. <laughs> My name is Jim. I'm a um, game developer. I, I made a game called Gordy and the Monster Moon. Pretty proud of it. Adorable. Kind of a Halloween-themed Zelda-like, bite-sized Zelda in miniature kind of a thing. I am currently between gigs, so if anybody wants to hire me, travel back in time to when I recorded this and uh, send me an email or a, or a, or a toot. <laughs> What's your email? Oh, I'm not saying that here. <laughs> okay. On Mastodon, okay, I am... <laughs> Mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social, which sounds like an email address, but it is not. It is a Mastodon address. I'll, I'll second that plug for Gordy. I mean, that was my uh, 2023 game of the year. Oh, dang. I think it was also the only game I played that was released in 2023. So that still counts. <laughs> it still counts. <laughs> still counts. <laughs> Are we ready to start on some topics? Sure. I think so. Uh, Erica, your topic is Mystery Hunt 2024. Every year I participate in the um, MIT uh, Mystery Hunt, which I talked about last year, but it's a giant team-based puzzle hunt that happens on campus, but also remotely um, and more remotely now uh, that the, uh, we had to do it off campus entirely during the pandemic. And, and tell us what, what a puzzle hunt is. So a puzzle hunt is like a series of puzzles that take a long time to finish. And, and they feed you into each other. <laughs> Thanks for the prompts. <laughs> you're trapped in a room, right? I'm trapped in a room. So uh, the way that the MIT mystery hunt is structured is that um, there are rounds of puzzles that open up. The puzzles are very clever. They're very funny. They tend to be puns or something that's kind of thematic with the story of the hunt. 
And then um, those rounds of puzzles have uh, meta answers where all the puzzles from the round are used and the meta puzzles unlock other rounds of puzzles. So you can see how this could be attackable by a team um, because there might be like a hundred puzzles that you're doing and they unlock um, sequentially as you finish the previous ones. Um, every year there's a story and every year the goal is to find a coin that is somewhere on campus. Sometimes it's buried. This year they just handed it to us because we won. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk about like um, this year's puzzle hunt a little bit, kind of with respect to how puzzle hunts have gone in the past and my experience on the team this year. Is that a good way to summarize that? Is that pretty clear? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, it's pretty comprehensive. So this year we had something like three to 5,000 people doing it. It was written by team to be named later. And um, there's something like 300 teams that do it. Um, my hunt is, uh, sorry, my team is Death and Mayhem. It was a, a like a grouping of Electric Mayhem and Death from Above. And we combined forces and won our first uh, puzzle hunt ever. And then seven years later, we've run the second one. So our curse is that we have to write the puzzle hunt for next year. So this update next year will sound very different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and that that's a that's an interesting like that seems to be predicated on the idea that like if you're good at solving puzzles, you're also good at making puzzles. Yes, this is not the case. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so when we won, I think it was seven years ago. Um, when we won, it was the fastest hunt that was ever run. So usually they go from about Friday afternoon at 12 East Coast um, and they run through maybe like Sunday morning. That's like a really good length for a puzzle hunt. So uh, you can exist as a single person and be awake for that entire time. Although like it used to be the it's case. not recommended. Not recommended. It used to be the case that we could like sleep on the floors on campus this was like done away with for safety reasons and stuff. So in the past, was this a hundred percent on, on campus? Yeah, I think it started in like 1982 and I think there were 20 people doing it. And there was like um, a riddle and there was a mathematical integral and there was like a word puzzle. And then the winning team won like a keg of beer and a coin. <laughs> <laughs> and the coin was just like, it was a dime. It was, it was, it was like a, it was like a, just a penny or something. It was not, not a special <laughs> thing. Um, it's gotten more elaborate. Now there are props, there are like machines that do things. There's all kinds of like, um, incredibly beautiful technologies that come into play to allow people to do things. And then the way that people write puzzles, like when they're not being serious and they're being like funny when they're using puzzles to tell jokes, like that's when things like really get rolling. And like our, the one that we wrote a while back was like kind of known as, as one of people's favorites or maybe um, a lot of people's favorites because it was just so funny and lighthearted and it was timed well and stuff. But because we had when we won, it was the shortest puzzle hunt ever. We just slammed through something like 200 puzzles or something like that in less than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. There was this like series of overcorrections that happened. And now <laughs> I think this one, like la last year's or this one was the longest puzzle hunt ever. So we weren't done till Monday morning at 5 a.m. And everybody was just exhausted. There wasn't any time to recover. 
before like the wrap up and the way that they wrote their puzzle hunt was so long. There were something like 237 puzzles. It was so long that people were in like disbelief when they opened up <laughs> the puzzles. And one of the puzzles, because this was like a Greek gods themed one, one of the puzzles was the Hydra. So that was considered one puzzle, but it was actually 150 sequential puzzles that you had to solve. So like the real the real number of puzzles was somewhere up like around 350 puzzles, which was just too many, mm-hmm. even for a team of like over 100 people. I'm imagining some sort of some sort of like self-generating uh, puzzle, like every yeah. time you open one, it, yeah. it, it dynamically yeah. creates two new puzzles. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and the mechanic and the theme is so good, but like nobody got to see any of these things because most of the teams couldn't get past the first round. Right. Oh, wow. I'm quoting Foggy Broom, who is on Team Palindrome, and he talked about this. Um, he writes Puzzle Boat and, and Panda Magazine, like really great puzzles that come out like quarterly or something. He was talking on his podcast about this year's hunt. And he was saying like, and I totally agree that like all of the effort uh, by these like puzzle designers and the people who put together like all of these clever and fascinating things, it's basically seen by just the winning team or just a handful of of people, right? Because even as part of the winning team, I only got to see two or three puzzles because like that some of them need to be solved and they take 10 hours to solve. So um, my experience this year was possibly even more frustrating than it was last year, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to our team fixing this problem and I'll come back next year and let you know. <laughs> so, so you're planning on reducing the, the puzzle inflation? Oh God, absolutely. The raising yeah. the, the puzzle interest rate or whatever you'd have to do. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should, I, I shouldn't spoil this, right? But maybe I should pitch that to them as the puzzle theme idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something you said kind of, uh, it, it reminded me of um, what I understand is a common just problem with game design is that so much effort is spent on sort of the, the late game, the more difficult parts of a game that only a fraction of, of the people even beginning it are ever going to see. Right. Um, which I, I guess this is this is an especially egregious example of that. And you as an amateur game designer should take note. <laughs> <laughs> if you see that first screen, you you've seen the whole game. So. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it seems like it would be much less work to just have like instead of um the winning team having to solve a bunch of puzzles, they could just have a message that says, Hey, just tell everybody you solved the puzzles. <laughs> And that it was great. And then no one would be the wiser. It's true. I mean, that might be the case. And she's just kind of gaslighting us. <laughs> In the magic world, stage magic, this is called instant stooging. Instant stooging. <laughs> That's a thing. Maybe we should do that. I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's nobody's, nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to stay awake until Monday morning like unshowered, like having eaten basically nothing or just fast food for like three days. If I remember right, like you were on like a year ago and you complained about this exact same thing. Oh yeah. And, and there was even like Dan Katz, who's another one of these like puzzle designers and puzzle solvers. He put together this like little thing as part of the scavenger hunt, a type of like strong, bad animation. And he did the animation and the voices where like he showed the puzzle hunt getting death and or mayhem. 
um, mm-hmm. like too early on the clock and then said, oh no, like I hope this doesn't start like a several year cycle of overcorrection. <laughs> like everybody's <laughs> aware of this, but um, it's not fun to have to marathon through the last day. Like it should be timed better because having the puzzle hunt strategically solved from under you by using your free puzzle um, cash-ins because the the designers didn't do it right and have to like advance the timeline is is one of the most like um, disheartening things that you can experience as a pu- puzzle solver. Yeah, I can imagine. Can can you explain that? So you're you're allotted some free puzzle cash-ins. So they know that the puzzle hunt has to be over Monday at ten a.m. Oh. It has to be over um, because everybody's going to show up for wrap up and they have to have like a little explanation of how the puzzle hunt was designed and like do some thanking of people and and show some of the, the fun moments of the hunt. But if it's not progressing fast enough, they start giving out like five free puzzle cash-ins for the leading teams or for all the teams mm. or something. So you can advance faster. But you might have been working on a puzzle for six hours and then your team bosses basically strategically need that puzzle to be solved to feed something else. Yeah. So they they cash it in without consulting you. And so like all of that work and all of the like teamwork that you put in under these horrible conditions where everybody's <laughs> too tired to agree on anything and you're working in these pressure situation with strangers. It's it sounds like you need a producer. what what would the producer do well the producer would just be their job would be to be on top of who's working on what and how far along it is and if not make the decision then at least facilitate making the decision of like who could what what puzzles should we use our our tokens on i mean the the team the team leaders or the team bosses like they do that that's their job but um the point is to never be in a situation where the the puzzle writers have written such a long hunt that yeah. you have to use that strategy to get out of it. Like for it to feel fair, it has to be like forward solvable, meaning like people who are solving the puzzles can solve through them in the right amount of time. And yep. then there's like an element of back solving where people put together the information that they have and they they help your team get forward a little bit um, because they know they know what direction your puzzle is going in so they can help you strategize about that. But like the, for it, for the puzzle hunt to feel fair, it really has to be organically solvable by the teams. And like, that just hasn't been the case for the past couple of years, which is kind of unfortunate. Even for a hundred person team, which is. Yeah. Even for a hundred person team. And is that a typical team size? No, we're the largest. But we do have yeah. we do have a lot of like parents and people who like go to work and like need right. sleep and yeah um, you know have to have to prevent their kids from from dying. <laughs> Itself a puzzle. <laughs> will, will you be part of whatever fraction of that hundred people are are spearheading the yeah. next puzzle? Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll at least write several of the puzzles. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's what I do when I'm not writing an org for Jim. <laughs> in the past i've seen like certain puzzles shared like with the world as like this one is solvable on its own and it's fun and you should check it out i've seen that sort of thing yeah is there any were there any standouts that were worth worth showing to people 
I'm sure there were, and I could share um, like people's write-ups of them, but my personal experience was that I got to, um, because I had other things to do over the weekend, I got to work on three puzzles that got solved from um, from under me. And right. so like Good. the whole thing felt very unsatisfying to, to me, and a lot of people had that experience. Yeah, like do you have a sense of like what percentage of puzzles were actually solved versus what percentage were, whatever you call the the medallions. Yeah. Usually in the, um, in the wrap up, they talk about that. Um, they talk about like how the hunt progressed for everybody and which puzzles were people's favorites and which got solved, um, the most and which never got touched. Um, and the puzzles, the puzzle hunt lasted so long that they weren't able to run stats for themselves. Um, so we never found any of that out and their website, um, that was hosting the puzzles crashed so often that they had to restart the server every hour. And now I'm not even sure that the puzzles are up because they're having like server migration problems. (laughs) Um, So I can't tell you, um, which is kind of a downside, but I, I will share in the show notes, some of the, the write-ups where people got to see more of the puzzles and had, had favorites. I'll have to take a look at that. I feel like I, I, I only ever hear about this in the abstract and I, I still have no <laughs> real idea like what the, the actual puzzle content is. <laughs> <laughs> there is like a website that has them all archived so that um, you can see them, you can see the solutions, you can see the explanations of the solutions um, and you can just work through them, which is um, kind of what people do in their spare time to practice for the next puzzle hunt. But that archive is really useful. Everything is tagged so that you know um, you know that you're not writing the same puzzle accidentally as somebody else. <laughs> is that what you do in the run up? Like, do you have like a like a prep? Like, okay, we're we're three weeks out. You know, got to do three three puzzles a day. You know, <laughs> <laughs> work out the kinks. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the teams do that, and a lot of the teams like. Um, the members will go into other um, puzzle hunts. There are puzzle hunts that go on all over the all over the world. I think the best puzzle hunt that I was ever part of um, outside the mystery hunt was like a My Little Pony themed hunt. <laughs> Every single puz- puzzle was My Little Pony themed, and it sounds like incredibly boring, but the puzzles were so much fun, and the way that they um, unfolded and very clever mechanics of the individual puzzles just just totally brilliant and you can you can take anything and turn it into a puzzle if you're thinking about it right so you don't need to you don't need to throw 350 puzzles at somebody to make them have a good time (laughs) (laughs) are we ready for another topic sure yeah Corey, your topic is developing my first video game yeah i put this one in um well obviously um this is something that was chronicled on the the topic lords discord so there's there's some premium content for uh, listeners who want to subscribe. That's right. This uh, started last year, uh, I think maybe around October. Um, It had been, you know, a a goal of mine for a while to sit down and learn Pico 8 specifically, that that's what I'd had uh, kind of zoned in on. I saw some posts about it on on the insert credit forums. and then when when I started seeing uh, Gordy uh, shaping up, that that was when it kind of kicked into high gear for me. It wasn't totally driven by the desire to actually make a game. It was also an excuse for me to actually sit down and learn some programming, which has been also a longtime goal of mine. 
I've somehow like skirted around programming despite being uh, very close to it <laughs> for a lot of my life. And uh, this seemed like Pico 8 just seemed like the perfect, you know, bite size and well-contained uh, system while also being a good, uh, you know, it, it, it's not really a drag and drop, right? Like you actually have to program the uh, the logic right. in the game. Yes. You know, there is a, a GUI inside for editing pixels and creating the maps and and for creating the music. But, you know, you actually have to use a variant of, of Lua to, to script it out. So, you know, it seemed intimidating anytime I, I had kind of glanced at it. But with this uh, sudden newfound uh, determination, I... I watched a couple of YouTube videos, which uh, you you can learn a surprising amount. I mean, it's no news to anyone from YouTube these days. Was the were these the Lazy Dev Academy videos? So I started with with Space Cat, which are are these really bite sized like ten minute videos, and it really just covers one thing. It's like get a sprite on the screen, move that sprite. You know, here's what a for loop is, and then eventually, as I you know kind of built up more more facility with it. Then I moved on to the the Lazy Dev Academy, which those are longer, more involved videos. And they're great to actually just kind of have on in the background uh, sometimes um, when you're kind of doing other things. Right. And, uh, you know, it literally started with, you know, putting putting someone on the screen, taking in controller inputs. I didn't really know what my goal was, like the the game uh, that I that came out of this uh, Butter Dorks um, was kind of developed as I learned, so there was there was very little intentionality. Like the first step was was I drew a sort of humanoid figure on the screen. Then I wanted to, him to do something cool, um, so I figured a flaming sword, like hold a knife. Okay, yeah, <laughs> was is something that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be the next like you know Legend of Zelda clone or something. And and it was just. I don't think pathetic is the right word, but it's, it was kind of, let's go with adorable. Just watching uh-huh. this little white uh, eight pixel tall humanoid figure with a, uh, with uh, you know, a, a six pixel gray stick <laughs> that that's emanating a few orange and red pixels. So I, I downgraded the flaming sword to a, to a hot knife. And I figured the most logical thing for a hot knife to be used against would be butter. Oh, that's where the theme that's, came from. That's where the theme came from. <laughs> and then the the kind of uh, Robotron Space Invader looking uh, square dude with legs was was my attempt to render a kind of pat of butter uh, that's been animated by by some nefarious force. So a butter golem. <laughs> a butter golem. Exactly. A good maybe a good alternate title. Butter golems, yeah. No, I think you I think you got the you got it in one. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I the name came from like, look at this dork, basically, and then right. I posted some GIF on on the uh, the the Discord, and it it kind of stuck there. I mean, it's probably Erica's idea. Most most of the game design was indirectly <laughs> via Erica. <laughs> I don't think I had much to do with this. I I was so <laughs> impressed with what came out of this. It's just so like. I don't know. I do know how to code. And I was I was kind of cowed by Pico 8 during the Pico Steve Mo uh thing that we all we all tried. Um, but you got one of those out also, right? I did, yeah. That yeah. was my second <laughs> can, can you tell me like about like how much programming experience do you start with? Mm. Um, I mean extremely sporadic stuff. I I remember I had a copy of Visual Basic when I was in high school and I used that to make 
just all a GUI editor to make something for my sister as a kind of a joke birthday present because uh, she was into American dolls at the time. So <laughs> I made a little like uh, applet, like a .exe, whatever, where it's just you you click ahead. Uh, you you there's a drop down list of of the dolls' heads. You pick one of those. Drop down list of the dolls' bodies. You pick one of those, and then it it just snaps them together. And that that's the whole thing. Just a single window thing. No real programming involved. That's cute. But. I think it's uh, <laughs> time to to uh, remake that. For the... <laughs> Dream doll designer. I found it on a <laughs> floppy disk recently in Pico Eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, some. I mean, I've used Bash terminal like Linux and Unix, uh, but no no programming. Just getting around the you know the command line. Uh, then I dipped my toes into Python when I thought I wanted to learn about machine learning, but you know, that, that didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> so, you know, not, not a hundred percent naive, but I've, the thing is I've never had like a project in mind. And I, what I've come yeah. to learn is like, you're not going to actually learn anything unless you have a goal, you know, a project that you're mm-hmm. kind of, uh, plugging away at. So, yeah. That's been my experience as well. Yeah. I, I was like, I think butter dorks is a very inspiring story. <laughs> You mean the the game or the development of the, the development game? of because the, the development of the game? <laughs> I have more to say about the letter. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who are like where you were at the beginning of the month, uh, and the idea that you can ship a pretty fun game in a month or so. It was about a month, right? Yeah, it was. It was just so. What kind of lit a fire under me um, was there's a, a local barcade, you know, nearby in Brooklyn. Um, that that has a Pico 8 cabinet where they they'll host a game. Oh wow! And they they announced the deadline to submit it. You know, I just came across this on their Instagram page. Was in just a couple weeks, so that that kind of set the goal for me, and that that kind of led to pretty rapid iteration. You know, and and again, like it was it was very kind of organic game design. Like I'm like, okay, so there's a guy or you know the colonel uh, with the hot knife, and there's butter. I hit them. Now it happens. So, okay. They melt and things fall down. Like, okay, what happens next? Things are falling down. They have to fall on something. Okay. I put uh, popcorn at the bottom of the screen. Okay. Now you have a goal, you know, so fill up the bottom of the screen, then another, you know, set appears and, you know, it's not quite satisfying enough. So, you know, I thought uh, that's when I added the combo system where some of them, if they melt, the, the butter droplets will hit others and cause others to appear uh, to, to melt and, you know, react. You could build up combos and someone had suggested uh, adding a, a hit stun mechanic, you know, actually DJ tent mode who did the music, Andy, uh, check out his stuff. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, once I added that one screen uh, hits, st- not hit stun, but uh, hit pause, mm-hmm. uh, just really added to the, the, the crunchiness to the gameplay and like, Anyway, so that organic kind of side of design happened to actually develop to 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 come up with the concept of the game, but to finish something like you said, like you really needed a goal, and my goal was getting something in, um, you know, within the I think three weeks or so that I had from when I started, and that showed me, which I'm sure a lot of people know, is that buttoning something up for like an actual complete shippable product shippable in quotes <laughs> is a really hard part. Like, you know, I, I'm like, okay, now I need a, a title screen. I decided I wanted this. This is going to end up being ideally in an arcade cabinet. So it needs a high score. And like these, it takes like two seconds to say, I need a high score screen. But then I'm like, oh my God, 
how do I, how do I even approach that? I, I have to fig- I had to figure out how to save something because Pico 8 has a rudimentary like save RAM system where you can only save like single numerical values. So I had to kind of figure out in my mind, okay, how am I going to turn that into three letter initials? And my other goal with this is, you know, I, I, I watched the videos to kind of get myself you know, off the ground, but I wanted to figure out as much stuff as I could by myself. You know, I didn't really copy too much code in, you know, it was all kind of figured out by myself. In fact, there was, a, I, I was trying to figure out how to do um, hit detection. And I think I, I showed you the algorithm I came up with, Jim. And, you know, you said that's, you basically said that's one way to do it. There's a simpler way to do it. <laughs> but I, I, I took that uh, I read that advice and decided to move on and keep working on other things. Sure, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a solid strategy for shipping a game, like especially because with video games, mm-hmm. you you ship the game and then you just never look at that code again. So if it's work, <laughs> it's working. Like it doesn't matter how it's working. It, it's funny because in this particular instance, it it was incorrect in a way that I think actually ended up being useful to the game where. What was happening is that instead of really just being a true or false, whether the the knife was detecting a a, a dork, it would basically run that for every pixel that's overlapping. So, and, and based on any pixel that's overlapping, that would produce, you know, the shower of butter. So because it it actually depended on the overlap, uh, if you wait to deploy the knife until you're, you have maximal overlap with the dork, you'll produce even more butter. So... I unintentionally created a, a, a mechanic um, by by poorly implementing a, a first attempt at at hit detection. I love bugs that make games more fun. <laughs> this causes me to have like two thoughts about this. One is mm-hmm. that like Corey, you missed your calling. I I know you have like a career and everything, but like this this uh, this would have been good for you. Be a game designer. The, the other thing that occurs to me is that like we should like really work on replacing the American dream. You know, it shouldn't be mm. like pulling yourself off up by the uh, the bootstraps and like trying to survive in a rough economy. It should be like, can I make a shippable game in three weeks? You know, because that's achievable, but yeah. only for some people who who work hard. Whereas like the other thing is just a total lie, right? <laughs> so I, I think you've done it. I think you've You've reinvented the American dream. Oh wow, that's that's getting lofty. <laughs> I mean, one one other thing I will say, like, is it's also like an extremely uh, high return on investment for just uh, getting getting enjoyment out of a product. So I spent fifteen dollars mm-hmm. on Pico Eight, mm-hmm. and I ended up spending more time in that that program than playing any of the games, you know, I had, I had bought on steam or whatever. I mean, I, I had just built a brand new high-end gaming PC. And the only thing I ran on it for the end of, well, basically since building it was, was Pico eight. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's gratifying. And I think, you know, uh, I also wanted to make sure I mentioned that uh, you did make a very important contribution. You, <laughs> you said you made a very specific request that, an orange cat that I, I had never heard of. Apparently, he's, he's famous, uh, named Jorts. Jorts here in the game. Yes. And at some point, it should say, "What is it?" I can't believe they buttered Jorts. I can't believe they buttered Jorts. <laughs> so at some point, I decided to to implement a character select, which does nothing except 
you know, cosmetically change which which character you're controlling and and the originally intended to be hidden, but eventually just, you know, the last one you select is was a little orange cat. And I was very <laughs> proud of that. The the only pixel art I'm especially proud of in that game <laughs> was my little eight by eight cat. And also fast forwarding a little like so it was not selected for that that arcade, but one of the people who is um, involved in in choosing it, who runs a, a collective called Arcade Commons, um, was going to be setting up the indie booth at, at MAGFest. And he kind of emailed me out of the blue and asked if uh, I would let him, I, I would give him the honor of <laughs> setting up <laughs> Buttered Dorks <Wow. laughs> uh, in the indie arcade at MAGFest. And, you know, I was completely blown away by that. You know, that came out of nowhere. So um, they they actually, I was just there uh, last week, and they had set it up on a, a little CRT television with an actual NES controller, and uh, it was it was it was pretty wonderful. And the reason I bring that up is I would periodically check on it to see, you know, what what characters people were playing, and and Jorts was far and away the most popular <laughs> character. So excellent. <laughs> thank you, Erica. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm so happy that this uh, this was a success for you. I mean, that's. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really fun. I was going to ask, like, how <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to ask on the show, but at some point I was going to ask, how'd you get it at MacFest? But that, yeah, just fell in your lap. That's, that's great. Yeah. Totally just fell in my lap. You know, just like Erica uh, texting me two days ago asking if I'd like to be on the show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Turns out I just have to wait uh, just about 40 years and things start falling in my lap. <laughs> There's hope for the young generation yet. <laughs> But yeah, then my my sophomore, well, my one and a half game was was Rain Jerks, was a re, which was a reskinning of uh, Butter Dorks for for the insert credit show. Which um, there there's some misunderstanding. They seem to think Rain Jerks was the original one, but we, we know we know it's the we real know. one. Yeah, well, they, they can you know they can believe what they want. And then the Pico Steve Mo was, I think. Uh, me being a little overly ambitious and sticking as much stuff as I could in the game as possible. That game was very fun, though. It's not officially released. Think Think Buick, which is a very bad pun that I, I'm not even going to get into, is <laughs> eventually going to be released as a 1.0 when I get back to it and, and actually disentangle the uh, too many systems I put into it. It was fun. I really, I really <laughs> like that. really like that one. I mean, all, all it needed was the... The animation of Buick's eyes opening, and you had what you have a winner there. Yeah, yeah, I was proud of that one. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my topic is wearing glasses prevents COVID. This is something that I had wondered about and never really took the idea seriously. But I recently saw a paper. I haven't read the paper because it's behind a paywall. But apparently, um, wearing glasses uh, reduces COVID infections by about fifteen percent. Infection rates by about fifteen percent which is incredible. That's assuming that wearing the glasses does not interfere with your masking. Yeah, that was an important caveat there. Right. Uh, and it, can you guys hear this cat? No. No, I, I uh, this no. cat is not on the show, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. We've got some cats chasing each other around the room. Not, not audibly, apparently. Are they wearing their glasses? Are they safe from COVID? <laughs> <laughs> not safe from each other, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm the most unsafe person on this call right now. <laughs> yeah right and it, it kind of makes sense because like um of, of all the exposed mucous membranes on your face the eyes are two of them yeah i just i don't understand this i i really don't because like my understanding of 
COVID is that it's very unlike other kinds of like cold and flu things. Like you can certainly give yourself the flu by touching a door handle and then rubbing your eye, right? Oh yeah. I actually saw somebody theorizing, I forget who it was, that this might be that like when you're wearing glasses, you're less likely to touch your eyes. Yeah, yeah, but but COVID is different. Like COVID is something that um, the virus particle actually has to lock into the lining of your lung tissue. Oh, it doesn't just replicate anywhere. It like replicates in your lungs. I don't know if it actually replicates in your nasal cavity also. Which you know, touching your eyes would certainly um, that's connected to your nasal cavity somewhere, like the tear ducts and stuff. I don't have like enough knowledge to comment on this, but I I wonder if it's like something as simple as like people who wear glasses are not as popular and they stand away from the group, <laughs> you know, they stand 15% away from the group. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I think I had saw seen that you put this on the list. So I, I, I skimmed the paper and also saw that there, there's a surprising amount of literature addressing this, this very question. <laughs> And there was, uh, I think, a 2021 uh, survey, I think, from the UK showed that there, there was an advantage to wearing glasses. Then there was a randomized control trial in Norway in 2022 that showed that there was actually no difference between the, the groups. And this was a pretty big study. It was like 3,000 people. So it seems like a randomized control trial, you know, high number of participants, seems like it closed the book on it. And then this study, which I think is still in press, it's like coming out in February, was survey based, but it was also based on like fifteen thousand or some some huge number of oh my god of people. Um, and you know, I, I didn't look at all the data, but supposedly they controlled for all different things. And you know, a major caveat, like you said, and that they addressed in the discussion was was whether or not it interferes with mask wearing. And they they kind of drilled down on that because I I'm guessing that the participants who wore glasses, who said it did interfere, were probably at a much higher risk because they kept going on about, you know, glasses fogging and we need to invent better masks for glasses wearers, et cetera, et cetera. They also discussed um, contact lens wearers. Apparently there, there was no protective effect of contact lens. Um, so, you know, because a lot of your eye is still uh, exposed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're, they're, they surmised that the... Um, protective effect is probably from, they, they use some colorful word for it, but projectile transmission or something like that. <laughs> so basically someone running up to you and coughing in your face, like <laughs> you're, you're better off wearing glasses. And they did mention, you know, not touching your eyes as much, but I don't know, that doesn't really track for me. I, I touch feel like my eyes more. Glasses wear is probably, yeah. I mean, if I were wearing glasses, I'd be adjusting them. I'd be I like, absolutely touch my eyes more. And it's because like, I probably need like bifocals, but I have to keep taking them on and off. So I'm constantly like, <laughs> I'm constantly like moving and then moving my hair around my eyes and then touching my eyes. Right. I do. I did see something that I, I do think is like defensible. So like you're, you're definitely not going to control everything in a, in a group of 15,000 people. This is not like a well-designed study of like watching people carefully and seeing like how they behave and like noting how many times they cut, uh, they touch their eyes. Yeah, and I, I doubt they <laughs> controlled for how popular they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. that, that's. <laughs> I, I know I've definitely gotten less, less cool uh, since I've been wearing glasses. Than, and you're um... embracing it apparently. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
just assaulting my local cheesemonger. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did see something credible about like um, people who wear masks that like really touch their face have like very little filtering going on with the mask. Like the filtering surface is not very much. And I wonder if the glasses somehow actually make the filtering surface more effective, either by blocking the area that would come through under your nose or something. Um, like, cause a lot of the masks don't fit like, uh, correctly over your nose. So like aiming the air actually at the filtering surface rather than the airflow through, um, vulnerable parts of the mask or something like that. But, but again, like I, you know, I'm not certain about this and like, maybe one of you knows more or something, but I really feel like this is like a, a thing that has to transmit through your nose or your mouth to not just a mucous membrane, but to your lung. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that regard, perhaps it's just that the virus becomes kind of resident somewhere on your face or your mucous membranes, and then you you transfer it yourself uh, to your, to your uh, respiratory tract at some point. But I don't, I mean, my, my thing is, okay. Like assuming this is true, what's, what's the actionable information here, (laughs) Um, which I guess the only thing I could take away from it is if you expect to be in a situation where you might be exposed wear an eye shield or something like i i don't know or get just dummy glasses i don't medical i don't see people walking around with goggles yeah (laughs) (laughs) i I think i I think all of this stuff is like you know hit 40 and keep going like your eyes are going to give out get the glasses admit you're uncool you know like um sit down and and ship that game uh like the american dream embrace the cringe like Wear wear chemistry goggles in public. <laughs> Just go full Horace Grant. Is is that a current reference? I, I don't know. What is it? <laughs> Horace Grant oh, goggles. Oh, Someone know. will get that. Somebody <laughs> not me. Is this a sports thing? I think so. <laughs> Old sports thing. Oh yeah. I'm I'm looking at pictures of this guy. Extremely uncool. <laughs> Let me see. I gotta see don't tell me that he retired like 20 years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. What's he doing with those goggles? <laughs> I was big into the NBA in like grade school when I thought that that was going to be my career. You retired exactly 20 years ago. Really? Look at that. <laughs> he's, he's not the tallest person I've ever been near. <laughs> wow. This is going to be very misleading for my first podcast appearance to make it seem like I know about sports <laughs> trivia. <laughs> we'll get to the depths of this. <laughs> Why was he wearing glasses though? Does he need glasses or does he just not want to be spit at or something? No, now you're now you're getting outside of my <laughs> he, he was he had myopia. Okay. He was anticipating COVID. He just wanted to get used to it. He, <laughs> he knows something. <laughs> I would wear those. Those look oh. like burning man glasses to me. Oh, he, he received LASIK surgery, but continued to wear the goggles as an inspirational figure to children. Oh. There you go. That's sweet. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Peter Parker wearing wearing glasses in the movie. Or Superman. After he didn't need them anymore. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Superman. I guess it's a very superhero trait. <laughs> Just to get, think of anything you can put on your face, and that's a superhero trait. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? The, the only thing you could put on your face to indicate that you're not actively being a superhero are glasses. Right, yeah. <laughs> Pacifier is not going to do it. <laughs> like, Sorry, before we move on from this topic, yeah, what I would want to test is like people who are wearing glasses, not for corrective reasons, and then just removing one of the lenses 
And so you could really test if it's like a popularity thing, because that looks real weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or 3D glasses, the red and blue ones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe those are more effective. Maybe <laughs> You can see the viruses coming in three dimensions. <laughs> Dodge out of the way. Uh, so for this topic, we're going to be doing the poem English Ending Song by uh, Ryoji Yoshitomi. I think I'm reading that right. Mm -hmm. Who would like to read this poem? Corey picked it, so I nominate Corey. Okay, fine. Oh, the dream that I had last night melted into my pillow. I made peace with the time I had forgotten, and all I'd gathered turned into sand. It's beautiful. This it's absolutely I, devastating. <laughs> I love that it's short. I like a short poem. But but wait, where, which video game did this come from? So I came across this very recently. It's uh, one of the ending song. It's the ending song for the Game Boy Advance game Wario Land Four. Wario Land Four, which despite ample opportunity, I still haven't played. But I I did watch a video about the music from this game. Because Wario Land 4 and, and all the WarioWare games just have the most fascinating bit-crushed, grimy, sample-heavy music. I don't if you if you've ever heard it uh, or any of the Rhythm Heaven games, like you'd you'd recognize it immediately. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked like I I made Agvorbis rips of all the Wario mm. Land 4 music and, and I put them on Napster. <laughs> But I'm going to read this again because this is like yeah, this is a gem of a poem to be hidden in a Wario game. Right. And not not only is it hidden, it's it's near indecipherable just because of how uh, you know. Right, right. These are lyrics that are that are sung, and they're sung at, in a sample that is played back at what, like six kilohertz or something like that. Yeah. So the way they even did it uh, with with the vocals in the Game Boy Advance game apparently is is they they would take each um, syllable and store that uh, and play that back, you know, in sequence to create the the vocals which is one reason, you know, it can be so meticulously pitched up and down, slowed, you know, uh, crumpled together. You know, if, if you if you listen to the actual music, um, there there's like a cadence to it, even though it's, you know, very short. But uh, Erica, did you want to read it again? Yeah, I want to read it again because like it goes by so fast. Like, oh, the dream that I had last night melted into my pillow. I made peace with the time I had forgotten all that I'd gathered turned into sand. Like it, it's just, it's just three lines. It's like, it's kind of like an extended haiku or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't want to get too hung up on the technical factors of it, even though they are so fascinating because it, it, it just really is, you know, as a surface reading, just a beautiful way of, of thinking about, you know, your dreams. And this, this is another thing that comes up on the topic Lords discord. A lot, yeah. Right. Right. Is, right. Is our collective dream diary. But you know, just it's so evocative. You know, the dream I had last night melted into my pillow. Yeah, because that's kind of how how it leaves your mind, right? It's not like it just snaps out. You know, yeah, it's like you, you remember aspects of it, and then suddenly it's gone. It it you know melts away, and it's just so. And it's kind of beautiful to imagine it kind of getting absorbed into your pillow, you know, along with all the right. dust mites and right. skin <laughs> <laughs> and follicles yeah, and whatnot. That's beautiful. <laughs> beautiful, Corey. And then, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> and, you know, I made peace with the time I had forgotten. It's just such like a, um, like almost like a, like a Marie Kondo of your mind. Yeah. You know, all I'd gathered turned into sand. You know, you, you, you try and hold on to it, but, you know, slips away. So it's, it's, 
surface surface level it's about dreams but you know it's it's kind of a philosophy for life a little bit it is it's like a it's a philosophy for life it's a philosophy for video games like when the video game is done all that you have gathered turns back into like the the bits of the video game mm. you have to move on and acknowledge that your investment in this piece of software was all <laughs> bullshit i feel like you're taking something specific to the table here jim can we explore (laughs) where that that comment came from (laughs) i can give you a refund on butter dorks if you want yeah yeah thank you i appreciate that can you can you refund my time though i mean this is uh this is the thing with arguably with all fiction and maybe even arguably with all of human experience yeah you know you're investing in something that like it like Everything is, nothing's going to last. Everything is impermanent, especially video games. Yeah. So, so this is, this is the thing that I think is so, it's so crazy. Like, it's not surprising to me when I find something as a piece of art buried inside any kind of media form where somebody has like had a thought and expressed it beautifully in a way that, um, captures something that I've never captured in that form before. It's like a slap in the face to see this in a Wario game. Mm. Like this is a person (laughs) who has thought deeply about human experience and impermanence and put it in a Wario game. And it's not even like Wario. It's like Wario 4 for the Game Boy. Well, it is is the best Wario Land game. So there's that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But the reason why I say this is so like devastating. This is, I I got married early in my 20s and I got divorced shortly afterwards, like after being with this person for six years, I think. And the divorce happened so quickly. Like we just made the decision and then it happened and he never spoke to me again. And I wasn't interested in speaking to him again. Yikes. I was in therapy during that period and it was just this kind of shocking removal of like an important human from my life and the way Mm. that I described it to my therapist was like it was like holding a beautiful sculpture of sand that had whipped up in my hands and then the wind dies down and all you have is sand like slipping through your fingers like there was something beautiful in front of me and something that like was determining my life and my future and felt like love and then it was just gone that's good practice for for life for the yeah. rest of your life yes oh yeah absolutely but but it was it was literally this image of like mm. sand like like an experience slipping away like sand yeah. and i i think this person whoever was designing the music in wario land 4 has like examined some kind of deep grief or something and like it just it's just so like incongruous and also so wonderful to just see this like expressed so beautifully to everybody. Like everybody will have this experience in some form. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think this might be the my favorite poem of the any of the ones that we've done. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've said this on the show before, but like I'll say it again because I think it's worth repeating. Like I think it's really important to be able to accept impermanence and still find beauty in it, the things that you have temporarily or the things that you had, that you once had, mm-hmm. you know, you still, you, you have to like, and I hope you can do this. Like that. It sounds like the, the, um, that marriage did not end happily. No, but with a little bit of distance, <laughs> I'm hoping at least that you can, you still have fond memories of, of the good times. Yeah. You, you don't have to tell me. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to take in what you're saying. Yeah, I think that my experience in general with things that have gone poorly is that they make me the person who I am. Right, like they uh-huh. make me have, they inspire the thoughts that shape my brain. Yeah, and so even things that didn't go well, like including my last postdoc position, right, which I'm still <laughs> kind of having PTSD from. Maybe that one would be the exception, but like they kind of inform the way that I relate to people, and yeah, there isn't there isn't regret associated with it. It's not that I go back and am nostalgic for the good parts, but there isn't regret. And I think that's where people can get to if things are like unhappy for them. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good a good way to approach it. I mean, do you agree with me that this poem is like an expression of grief or? I mean, I, I think it is, but I don't know if it's deliberately so. Yeah. I listened to the MP3 that Corey pasted that uh, of the actual audio. Let's let's listen to it now. Esper. Yeah, okay. Esper, do your thing. <laughs> do your thing. I was able to hear what the what the text said, but I think it's because I was prompted by the text. And I think the text may have been, I think this poem may be kind of a collaboration between the original musician and the person who transcribed it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's accurate. There are different ways you can interpret the sounds just because of how how kind of garbled they are. Although it is translated from the original Japanese version, which as I understand it, has a similar you know, it's it's a very faithful uh, translation. Although I did not look at the uh, original text, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it it really did strike me as as bittersweet initially. Not not necessarily sad. Uh, I mean, the word peace is in it, but it it seemed kind of kind of peaceful, kind of not something that's that's naturally run its course. Not not trying to artificially prolong it, but rather yeah. taking a step back. And you know, it's it's part of you know, a philosophy I've kind of been thinking about to myself is instead of if any given thing happens, instead of reacting to it right away, Mm -hmm. kind of put yourself in the mindset of yourself some distance in the future, you know, Mm -hmm. a week, you know, a month, a year, whatever. And just imagine how you would think back on this event and try and like average your reaction (laughs) between now and and that future person. So you don't kind of overreact or, you know, ascribe too much importance to it. Um, so, you know, this I think has some shades of that. Yeah. Yeah. I made my peace with the time I had forgotten. Yeah. Skipping ahead to that future state and trying to understand the maturity that comes with that. That's interesting. Yeah. It is, it is like, like Jim and I were talking about, like not necessarily nostalgia, but making your peace with something. And Mm -hmm. you and this poet have found a way to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Good good poem. Good poem. Thank you. I'm glad I came across it. Do we want to do one more topic? Sure. Uh, Corey, your topic is how to make satisfying nonviolent gameplay. This is something that we've talked about recently on Topic Lords, but I'm I'm not with you two. So 
I'm I'm very happy to 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 cover the same ground again, and I'm ho- hoping the 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 listeners will go on this ride with us. <laughs> yeah, this this is a big topic, and it's it's one that I submitted, you know, in part because of of playing your games, Jim, and you know, listening to Topic Lords and talking to you about game design, and also just thinking, you know, moving forward after putting out, you know, Butter Dorks and the Pico Steve Mo game, I'm intentionally trying to do something as different as possible you know, for, mm-hmm. for, you know, my next attempt and like trying to make something that's not a single, single screen arcade game doesn't involve, you know, even cartoon violence and maybe has like a definable beginning and end. But a, an important step there is figuring out what that kind of crunchy, satisfying gameplay can be if it doesn't uh, hinge on the, 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 the natural kind of rush you get from, hitting things, popping things, blowing things up, knocking them around on the screen, you yeah. know, and the, the, the obvious answers that come to me are, you know, puzzle solving, puzzle games, you know, exploration, but, but still something that has that visceral thrill. And, you know, I was wondering what your thoughts on it were. It's tough because there are much fewer reference for it. You have to play a lot of video games to find the ones that you can use as a reference for nonviolent games, because, like there are, there are genres that are like, so for example, there's like games like Tetris, there's mm-hmm. games like Sokoban. Those are, those are like examples of that you can, you can refer to. And there's games like dating Sims where it's just here, you're clicking through text and all of these can be made to, to pop, you know, to feel like, mm-hmm. like that it has a, it has a good UI, a good feeling UI uh, interfaces and, 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 and responsive controls, but it's, We've spent like as a as a culture 40 plus years figuring out how to make shooting people in the face feel really good. And we can <laughs> like <laughs> and when you're making a game that's not about shooting people in the face, you're competing with that. You're competing with that experience mm-hmm. and you you have to make it whatever you're making, you have to make it work on its own merits. This has to be a testosterone thing, I think. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, I've i never had an experience in a first-person shooter that I enjoyed. Well, good for you. Like, nobody should. I mean, I love World of Warcraft. Like, I don't mind, like, mowing people down with my giant cat. Okay, so, so, so still still violence. I'm, yeah, yeah. I, when I mean shooting people, I mean standing in for... Also, you know, hitting people with a stick, that counts too. Yeah, but but I mean, I've, I've talked about the games that I like playing and they're very, very different. Yeah. The question is, what do you, what act, activities do you fill your game with? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It can either be like designed puzzles where mm-hmm. the designer like is, is crafting the experience moment to moment throughout the whole game, or it can be some sort of systemic thing where like, uh, elements come together like a plot driven thing. Yeah. I, I mean, like, um, like a roguelike sort of a situation where like, you know, you, oh, okay. the designer might not have a, have a hand in every, every, every scenario that comes up, mm-hmm. but you know, you put these five objects in a room together and interesting things happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are things that I don't, I also don't derive any pleasure from, uh, but like people are just so crazy about them, like Euro Truck Simulator. <laughs> oh yeah, driving is a great example, driving. actually. Like people love driving games, and why? That, that, you're, just, <laughs> you're just doing violence against uh, the ecology, yeah. yeah, and also any passersby that happen to be nearby. You're increasing their risk levels. So, but you're not hitting people with a sword. So there's that. Right. I don't understand why people would play that, or like any kind of like. Um, 
airplane sim to me i can feel like my life draining away as those things happen in front of me it's all desert bus for you yeah desert bus <laughs> it's all desert bus is like pokemon snap is that a violent game because you're photographing the animals it's kind of like hunting them. i would say that that game is more violent well, than, you're throwing pester balls at yeah, some of them. <laughs> it, it, it's more violent than it has to be but like certainly i think a, a game like that could be made where like you're just going through an environment taking photos and i think I think that could work just as a mechanic by itself. Yeah, I mean, you, know, like, you don't have to like be, be an asshole and throw apples at a Snorlax until it wakes up or whatever. <laughs> I, I really like that suggestion, Erica, because I, I think that's getting at what I, because, you know, the way I worded the question was a little broad, you know, because yeah. satisfying can mean a lot of different things, you know, right. uh, do, simulating a seven hour transcontinental flight can be satisfying to some people, but I, I mean, more like immediately crunchy, gratifying gameplay, but right. like in, 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 the, in this context, like that would be like making the airplane switches feel good. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, but even with Pokemon snap, like there, there is almost shooting game like strategy right, to right. it where you're yeah. trying to capture, you know, certain Pokemon, mm -hmm. certain amount of Pokemon in a, in a frame, mm -hmm. timing it right. You're, you're not kind of like gradually strolling through the environment. Like there's, there's timing, there's, you know, mm -hmm. There, there's strategy involved. So that's, I, I think that's, you know, that's a great suggestion. There are all kinds of like, I don't know, palette swap mechanics. Like instead of mowing people down mm. in like an overhead shooter, you can paint, you could like spray paint things or, you know, like yeah, cover a wall then. with paint. I know there <laughs> are like painting sim simulators and like there's even like a Disney one where you're supposed to be painting the world. I, I don't know. I mean, like, there are ways to aim and do things to the environment that don't involve violence, but I don't know if that's exactly what you're talking about, or you're 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 asking more about things like Cook Serve Delicious, which <laughs> is like a a flow game that feels yeah. like really good that you just get better and better at. Hopefully, you know oh, that's yeah. another good example. Yeah, there are, there are yeah. a bunch of cooking games out there that you could use as reference. Uh, one thing I was going to say is, you know, I feel like the the system in in my game that that was most satisfying to me was that you know combo system and i feel mm -hmm. like if you abstract that away enough and you know take out the the sharp objects it it just kind of becomes you know like a peggle or yes. or, yep. <laughs> or a um you know any kind of uh loose kind of puzzle game like i don't know there's this game i've been playing lately called uh suika game have you heard mm -hmm. of it no it's no. uh I think originally a Japanese or a Chinese game, but it's a puzzle game where you just drop kind of happy looking fruits of different sizes. Oh, yeah. I and if they, yeah, yeah, if, if two of the same fruit matches, uh, contact one another, um, it turns into the, the next level up mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah. you know, it kind of proceeds from there. That's definitely a whole genre. I've, is that, that one that's like, is that like physics driven? Yes. yes. Yeah. And that, that's, mm -hmm. what's great about it is it's very like loosey goosey physicsy. You know, it's kind of like like a bad Tetris like <laughs> where you're you're kind of watching pixel by pixel as as two, I don't know, peaches slide together. <laughs> I'm just hoping. <laughs> yeah. I think of that as being like a, a genre that originated on like the iPhone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is something that like it just occurred to me. Probably there are a lot of, and I, I, I never really paid attention to this world because I always assumed like, well, like all their innovations are in like how to abuse the player to get more money out of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not actually true. Probably there are, be, there are genres being invented at Zynga or what have you. Yeah. Those 
games have a, a very broad audience. It's not yeah. just testosterone-driven kids. Wait, no, they, no the testosterone would be <laughs> their teenagers. We all have the, testosterone. The kids, it's not five-year-olds on T. It's a... <laughs> I think that part of this is like being creative and imaginative in the the physical space created by your game. And the reason why I say that is because like you're talking about something that's sort of like gravity driven. Like what's mm. what happens if you're in a two-dimensional space with gravity? Like, okay, you can drop things that merge. What happens if you're in a, a two-dimensional space with gravity and obstacles you get spelunky right mm -hmm. this was one of the things that i was going to say about the mystery hunt this year which was that i felt like it was very repetitive and boring in a lot of ways unfortunately <laughs> even though i i do want to like compliment the puzzle designers some of the mechanics and art were very good but you can take like any thing and you know make it so that the the puzzle solver has like an aha moment and then they're like ah i recognize this this is like referring to episodes of a tv show and mm. then they get directed to a stable wiki and then you're extracting like episode numbers and titles and like indexing some number into a title and then extracting like the final answer so you can you can do those things over and over again if you have an online system, a stable wiki, and a spreadsheet that's collaborative. But if you take those things away, suddenly you're designing puzzles that have to be conceptualized. Like that kind of puzzle is a very different thing than a puzzle that's like, you know, the boy's father is dead in a car accident and the boy is in the hospital and the doctor says, uh, I can't work on this boy. He's my son. Like that kind of puzzle solving aha moment is very different than like, I recognize this TV show and I'm going to go extract information from a wiki, if you understand what I'm saying. So like the constraints- And the answer to that one, by the way, is that the two burglars were disguised as each other and they weren't working together. No, the boy has two dads. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, come on, Jim, get with the future. Mm. <laughs> But like basically the constraints of the the physical space or the the interactive mechanism that you set up can either be designed from the like, I want this thing to be presented to somebody, or you can design the mechanic and say, what is the most interesting thing I can do with this? And I think that some of those like push block puzzles are like, what's the most interesting thing I can do with this? And like, I think when you're asking like, what can I do that's like nonviolent and crunchy and interesting and, and solvable, like you're, you're actually aiming to find like a, to invent sort of like a genre of, of game. And I think that's like a good, interesting place to be because like, there's almost like a lack of imagination going into these things. Like what fits, what fits in a 15 minute experience, what fits on a two dimensional screen, what fits a joystick what fits a keyboard and like if you can think to those questions and think beyond those questions you might be inventing something really new yeah and you know, going on from that as maybe a micro topic is is just looking for inspiration outside um i mean this may be obvious but like outside other games like mm -hmm. one one little like kind of early tech demo game sort of thing i'm, I'm working on that I, i've shared on the discord like was inspired by, you know, a, a 
piece of art I saw it at the MoMA mm -hmm. just because I'm like wow that's that's a cool space I want to be in that space wow. and like there's no game there yet but <laughs> and there may never yeah, be it's a really but, fun space to operate in and it's also I think a really really fruitful for finding new ideas for sure yeah games are not at all like a done genre there's a lot left to invent and it's probably like not going to come from people who are like copying one another's game ideas it's probably people going to the moma and people raising kids and stuff like that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and that's all the time we have for topic lords uh erica if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet i'm in the topic lords discord and Corey, if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet i'm also in the topic lords discord going back to an earlier plug you know trying to find positive spaces uh online you know topic lord discord find a discord for your interest uh also, the uh, I'm Corey at the uh, insert credit forums, and that, that's where I'd say to look for me. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!